Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This week's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, is about a famous critic of democracy, who is also one of its most important defenders. David explains how Joseph Schumpeter's seeming cynicism about politics also provides the basis for taking democracy seriously. If one of the starting questions for thinking about modern politics is, what is democracy, then there are quite an astonishing range of different kinds of answers. I talked about one kind of answer last week, Carl Schmitz, but really there's a vast spectrum that runs all the way from extremely idealised, elevated notions of democracy as a kind of ultimate goal or good, seeking what's in everyone's interest or allowing people to rule themselves in a way that's both noble and productive, all the way through to extremely cynical answers that say that democracy, particularly modern representative democracy, is a kind of scam or sham. It's just a performance. It's a way of the people with power holding on to power while pretending to let the people decide. As the saying goes, if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. From idealism to cynicism, Schmidt actually, I think, is much closer to the idealised end than the cynical end But the person I'm talking about today, Joseph Schumpeter, is often thought of one of the more cynical definers of, characterizers of, modern representative democracy. And indeed, in his book, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, published in 1942, he gave a celebrated account of what democracy is that, for many readers, was extremely disheartening. He's a kind of debunker and often therefore assumed to be a cynical debunker. What did he say democracy was? Well, I'll talk a lot more about it today. But in essence, he says it is a kind of show, if not quite a sham. It's essentially manipulative. It's politicians trying to persuade people to vote for things that the politicians have constructed in order to try to persuade people to vote for them using whatever means and techniques are at their disposal to make things sound good. doesn't matter whether they are good or not. But if you can make them sound good, you will win. I'll just read one very short quote from Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, which gives you something of the flavour of the book. Schumpeter says, The psychotechnics of party management and party advertising, slogans and marching tunes, are not accessories to democratic politics. They are the essence of it. And he might as well added balloons in there too. It is the show. It is the performance. It is the marching tunes. It is the razzmatazz. That's democracy. There are a couple of other reasons for thinking that Schumpeter might be one of the cynics in the great divide or spectrum that runs from the idealists to the cynics. One is because he was an economist, and this may be a cynical thing to say, but economists have often been quite cynical about democracy. There is a tendency for those who approach political questions through an economic perspective to see self-interest where others might see the common good and to assume that macro decisions are really often just micro decisions made by people in their own interest for their own benefit, including politicians themselves. 
Schumpeter wasn't a typical economist by any means. He was actually much more interested in both history and human psychology than many economists of his time. But nonetheless, it is true that 20th century economics, particularly as we get later in the 20th century, has been quite cynical. And some of the most cynical accounts of democracy, of the self-interest that runs all the way through it, from the voters to the politicians and back again, has come from an economic perspective. And then on top of that, there was Schumpeter's own experience of democratic politics. So he is somewhat unusual among thinkers in the history of ideas, including the people that I've talked about in this series and the one before. Unusual, but not unique. So not in any series that includes Rosa Luxemburg. But he did have real coalface experience of politics, in his case, of democratic politics. In 1919, in the aftermath of the First World War, following the defeat of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Austria, became an independent state. It became a democratic republic. There were elections. And Schumpeter, still a relatively young man, became the finance minister in the new Austrian government, a pretty rickety coalition government. And as finance minister, he failed. He was fired after a year. He presided over hyperinflation. He never got a grip of the vast problems that the massively indebted Austrian state faced after the First World War. But he also saw democratic politics from the inside, the scheming, the bargaining, the self-interest, the game playing. He wasn't much good at it himself. And in the end, it spat him out. After he failed as Austrian finance minister, he went into private business and he became the head of a small investment bank in Vienna. And he failed at that too. In 1924, his bank went bust and he retreated back into academia. And actually, that's where he found fame and fortune. He moved to Harvard. And by the time of his death in 1950, he was probably the most famous economist in the world. But he was not famous because of his success either at politics or at business. And so that might make someone a cynic, including a cynic about democracy. Post-First World War Austrian politics, like post-First World War Weimar German politics, were not, for many people, a great advert of the highest ideals of democratic politics. Schumpeter has a reputation as a cynic, and Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy seems like a cynical book about politics. But I don't think it is, and I don't think he was. I think if that's his reputation, it's somewhat unfair. I think Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy is one of those books that has somewhat changed its character over time because of what it's remembered for now relative to what it was written for. So the three words in the title, democracy is the one that tends to stand out today, and it's more often a book that would be read by people who are interested primarily in trying to understand how democracy works. But that was not the reason that Schumpeter wrote it. Schumpeter wrote it in order to understand the relationship between capitalism and socialism, and democracy was something of an add-on. And indeed, Schumpeter's understanding of democracy is as something of an add-on to the more fundamental questions of political life. Schumpeter wrote much more about capitalism and socialism than he did about democracy. And he was much more interested in capitalism. He was interested in business cycles. He wrote extensively about entrepreneurship. He was one of those people who did most to identify the entrepreneur as the decisive actor in capitalist progress. And he believed in capitalist progress. 
He believed in the ability of capitalist systems to drive technological innovation and through that to generate often vast exponential new forms of wealth and benefit, which was then widely distributed among their populations. Schumpeter did not believe that capitalism didn't work. And yet he did believe that capitalism was likely to be supplanted by socialism. This was not a Marxist argument. He wrote about Marx, including in Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. He took Marx and Marxists very seriously, but not because he thought they were right. Certainly not because he agreed with Marx that capitalism would be undone by its inherent internal contradictions. It was not, he thought, internally contradictory. It was extraordinarily internally dynamic. And indeed, the things that Marxists or socialists saw as evidence of capitalist failure were for Schumpeter the moments of capitalist success. He coined the phrase creative destruction to describe how capitalism drives innovation and is driven by innovation. It comes with quite a lot of chaos. Businesses go bust. Capitalists run out of money. Old businesses are swept away with all their employees and with all the distress that causes. And yet the net result is not immiseration and certainly not revolution. The net result is an even wider distribution of even greater wealth and progress. For Schumpeter, capitalism was going to be undone not by its failures, but by its successes. It was too successful for its own good. Because capitalism depended upon a kind of drive, a sort of élan, the élan of the entrepreneur, a certain risk-taking, a certain mindset, a willingness to live with and through periods of creative destruction. And living through those periods left not everyone, but most people better off. But it left them better off in ways that were likely to sap the spirit of capitalism, likely to undermine its drive, because what capitalism created in its distribution of its benefits was, among other things, greater education and greater leisure time. The impatient, hungry, bourgeois entrepreneur trying to build a business from scratch, trying to create a legacy for his or her, but in Schumpeter's case, the assumption is almost always his family, is replaced by the more comfortable bourgeois class, better educated, more time on their hands, time, among other things, to criticise capitalism, to study it from the outside, to worry about its periods of creative destruction, time to read Marx. The reason that Marxism becomes a force under capitalism for Schumpeter is because capitalism is so successful at making people better off that ultimately it gives them the time to read and take Marx seriously. And when that happens, capitalism starts to lose some of its will some of its élan. And other priorities take hold. Comfort, security. It becomes easier for politicians to sell a different version of a modern political and social order. Socialism. Socialism is able to be parasitic on the success of capitalism because capitalism, in its dynamism, creates the room for socialist leisure. That is Schumpeter's argument although, of course, it's more complicated than that. And in that argument, Schumpeter thought democracy played a key role. So democracy is there in his book, not really to answer the question, what is democracy? And certainly not 
to do that thing that often happens at the cynical end of the what is democracy spectrum, where it becomes more of one of those questions I talked about in relation to Rousseau, one of the why questions, not what is democracy, but why the hell did we end up with this as democracy? How did we end up calling this democracy? Though Schumpeter's is a debunking book, it's not really that kind of book, and it doesn't have that strain of cynicism in it. He's trying to answer the question, what has democracy got to do with the possible transition of capitalism into socialism under conditions of capitalist progress? And his answer is that democracy is consistent with that process. Democracy will not stand in the way of capitalism going out with a whimper. But it's not because of the idealized version of democracy that socialists celebrate. So there's a significant part of the book in which Schumpeter does go out of his way to debunk the socialist ideal of democracy, the Marxist ideal, that come the revolution, come the new economic order, the people will genuinely rule themselves, that there could be such a thing as proletarian democracy, in which the people, the working people, collectively are able to impose their will on the state in order collectively to take charge of their own fate. Schumpeter thought that that was straightforwardly nonsense. And his evidence for it being nonsense was the fact, as he says, socialists say it, but they definitely don't believe it. And the evidence that they don't believe it is when they face a choice between democracy, the people ruling for themselves, and the socialist values in which they believe, collectivism, state control, redistribution, nationalization, full employment, whatever it happens to be, they do not side with democracy as their ultimate value or goal. They ditch it. Schumpeter is nothing like Rosa Luxemburg, but he spotted, as Luxemburg did, that one of the distinctive characteristics of Leninism, the form of politics that had produced the Soviet Union, and when Schumpeter was writing, was morphing into Stalinism. One of its distinctive characteristics was that it really had no interest in democracy, despite the lip service it endlessly paid to the democratic rule of the socialist people. Democracy went out the window first, not last, when it conflicted with the ideals of the revolution. But when Schumpeter says that, he also says that that is not, for him, a criticism of socialism. It is simply a fact of political life that actually nobody values democracy above their true ideals. And he asks his readers, who I think he is assuming are primarily not socialists, though some of these Marxists with a lot of time on their hands might also read his book, but he asks his readers to imagine whatever their ideal is, whatever the thing is they think that is most important in politics, would they ditch it if the people voted for something else? Because unless you would ditch it when the people vote for something else, Democracy is not your ideal. He asked people to conduct a thought experiment in the Roman Empire during the persecution of the Christians. If the Roman Empire, Schumpeter says, were a more democratic regime, had it been truly democratic, the Roman people in charge, he's pretty confident that it would not have been a more tolerant state. If anything, the persecution of the Christians would probably have been accelerated and endorsed by popular vote. So if you're a true democrat, that ought to allow you to say, well, in that case, the persecution of the Christians would have been fine because it would have been a democratic decision. And after all, what are we? We're Democrats. 
and we believe in democracy. And Schumpeter asks his readers to consider, are they really comfortable with that? And he answers the question for them. No, you're not, he says. You would not think that the persecution of the Christians would be fine so long as it were democratically endorsed. You think it's wrong. And if you think it's wrong, then you don't think that democracy is your ideal. You have other ideals. And he goes through a whole range of examples of the ways in which democracies do often display fundamental cruelties and intolerances. And for many people, these things are abhorrent and therefore they have to be rejected. And the fact that they have to be rejected is evidence that democracy is not a goal, it is not an end. It is, at best, just a means. And that is Schumpeter's definition of democracy in this book. It's a method, he says, it's a method or a means for arriving at political outcomes. It is not a goal or end of political outcomes. So then the question is, well, what sort of method is it? How does it work? And here Schumpeter offers two contrasting answers, not from, as it were, the idealized and the cynical end of the spectrum, but from what he calls the classical and the more modern or realistic end of the spectrum. There is a version of the democratic method that he thinks we've inherited, particularly from 18th century political thought. He fingers here Rousseau and Bentham as two of his culprits. He thought they each, in their different ways, had to idealize the notion of the democratic method. I think it's pretty unfair on both Rousseau and Bentham to think they didn't understand democracy pretty well. But still, Schumpeter says there is a version that says what it is a method for achieving is identifying the common good. That is identifying what it is that the people want. You ask the people in order to elicit an answer which then allows you to know, particularly if you are a representative politician, that is, if you have been empowered or legitimated by the people, it allows you to know what to do because the people have pointed the way. The people have established through the democratic method what their common interest is. For Schumpeter, this version of representative democracy gives the people the power to decide and it makes it incumbent on the representatives, and he thought this was what Rousseau argued for, it makes it incumbent on the representatives to do what the people want. It's a fairer criticism of Bentham, but even Bentham, I think, understood the limits. Schumpeter says, as a method, it makes no sense, because it cannot work. And there are two basic reasons why it cannot work, why you cannot use democracy to elicit an answer to the question, what is the common good? What is it that the people want to happen? The first reason is that there is no common good. In any modern state, the people are going to be too diverse, too varied in their interests, too varied in what it is they want. For there to be any method, for there to be any means of identifying something that could plausibly count as the common good. There are, of course, things that most people value. So Schumpeter gives the example of health. You could probably elicit from a democratic method a very large majority of people who think that health is a very important thing and that health and the prioritization of health should be at the heart of government policy. But as Schumpeter says, that doesn't really tell you anything. It certainly wouldn't tell elected representatives what to do. Tell them to value health. And they'll say, okay, but that still leaves all the important questions unanswered. Whose health? At what cost? Who's going to pay for it? 
using what kinds of medicine, organized in what kinds of ways. And when you ask the people those questions, whose health, what kind of health, you'll get a hundred, a thousand, a million different answers. And though you might then try and devise complicated democratic methods for turning those many different answers into a single answer, the single answer will be fake because it will simply obliterate the difference. That's problem number one. Problem number two is even if it were possible to construct something that plausibly could be called the common good or the collective interest, the people wouldn't know what it was. That is, even if they weren't so different in their understanding of it, they don't know enough about what's at stake to be able to identify it. The first problem is the problem of diversity. The second problem is the problem of ignorance, voter ignorance. Again, that sounds pretty cynical, but it's important to say that is not Schumpeter saying that people are too stupid, that the electorate are too dumb to take the really big decisions. He does not think that people on the whole are dumb, certainly not dumber than their politicians. It's a different kind of argument. He says most people, most of us, are extremely knowledgeable about some things, but we are knowledgeable about the things that matter to us. And the things that matter to us tend to be the things that are closest to us, things that really impinge on our lives. It could be a hobby. Most people know something really, really well, maybe for pleasure, maybe for work. It could be our families. It could be where we live. Almost everyone is an expert in some field. But very, very few people are experts in general fields, general fields like, say, health because that requires an interest in something that takes you a long way from yourself. It requires you, it forces you to step outside of your narrow sphere and to try and accumulate and then assimilate a wide range of different information and different experiences. And most human beings are not incentivized to do that. And that includes the vast majority of the voters. So if you asked someone whose passion was chess, to take a decision about chess, say the organization of a chess club, that person might well be extremely well-informed. But if you ask that same person, intelligent, well-informed, to take a decision about healthcare, it's very, very unlikely that they will have the wherewithal to do it. There's a version of this argument that I think almost anyone who's experienced it recognizes as true. Most people still, in one form or another, read things that we still just about call newspapers, that is, different forms of journalism. And most of the stories that we read are about things that we don't know particularly well, either general things or stories about areas of life that relate to people who are quite distant and quite remote from us. And we read these stories, we take them in, we might be influenced by them, we might forget them, but we often tend to just absorb them. And then very occasionally, you'll read a story in the newspaper which is about something that really impinges on you. It's either about a person that you know well, it's about the place where you live, literally, not just the town, but maybe the street. It's about your line of business and specifically the role that you play in that line of business. And when you read that kind of journalism, written by the same kind of people who've been writing the journalism that you've been unreflectively absorbing on a daily basis and sometimes taking as though it were the truth, you realise that journalists have no idea what they're talking about. When it impinges on your world, something that you know really well, you discover that most journalism is made up, full of mistakes, 
misinterpretations, misunderstanding of subtle and complex things, generalizations that ignore all the important differences. Lots of people have had that experience. And suddenly you think, oh my God, these journalists that I've been reading every day don't know what they're talking about. And then you read other stories about things of general interest, and maybe I'm speaking from personal experience here, and you lapse back into the easy, comfortable assumption that at the general level, these generalities will pass just fine. We all of us know things better than almost everyone. And when someone strays into that domain, even if it's their job to explain it, we notice they don't understand it. But for the vast majority of the time, about the vast majority of things, we're comfortable to let the generalists talk generally. Journalists have an incentive to generalize. Politicians also have an incentive, not just to generalize, but often to inform themselves about these complicated political questions that the voters don't understand. And Schumpeter thought there was an obvious difference between the voters and the people that the voters elect, a difference of knowledge versus ignorance, not stupidity versus intelligence, but incentivization to know on the part of politicians because it is their job. It is their line of business. Precisely these questions are what they do for a living. It's not true of the voters. So there's a massive imbalance of knowledge. And that means for Schumpeter that we have to come up with a very different definition of what democracy is. We've got to ditch the classic idea that it's a method for eliciting the voters' view of what is in their common or general interest. And he offered a radically different definition of democracy. Schumpeter said democracy is a method or means of competition between political elites essentially between the class, the members of the class of professional politicians, in order to elicit the support of the voters for projects, for versions of the common good, for versions of the collective interest that have been manufactured by the politicians. The politicians have come up with the answers, dressed up in the language of the common good. And then all they're trying to do is sell them to the voters. And the one who sells best is the one who will get the most votes. And the one who will get the most votes is the one who will win the competition. And that, Schumpeter thought, is democracy. And that, Schumpeter thought, is the whole of democracy. There isn't then some higher version to which it is aspiring that isn't a step on the road to the collective good, to the common interest. That's it. It's just the method, the means of selling a version, a manufactured version, of what the people want to the people so that they will endorse it, so that the politicians can get on with doing the thing that is often in their interest, which is exercising power. It sounds cynical. It's also true that the analogy that Schumpeter draws, the closest analogy he thinks between the business of politics and some other business, is with advertising. He explicitly says that politics is very, very close in its method to the methods of modern advertising, hence the razzmatazz, the balloons, the marching bands, but also much more sinisterly from a 21st century perspective, that phrase that he used that I quoted earlier on, the psychotechnics, the manipulation, The ability of the politician to persuade a voter that something is in that voter's interest by using whatever techniques are available 
to chime or strike a chord, to trigger something that does seem to resonate with the area of life that matters to that voter. That, as Schumpeter says, is not an accessory to democracy. It is the essence of democracy. In 1942, by 21st century standards, advertising was pretty crude. That argument in 2021 sounds positively sinister. In the age of micro-targeting, in the age of, and I use this as shorthand because I don't think this is actually the problem, but in the age of Cambridge Analytica, and at least the fear, even if not yet quite the reality, that new forms of technology, new forms of technology that were created by the creative destruction of capitalist innovation, are now allowing politicians and indeed others, not just professional politicians, and outsiders too, to manipulate, to infiltrate, to persuade using techniques that are not accessible to the voters, that are not understood by the voters, in the age of deep fake technology. If democracy is just advertising, then it does sound like we are in a lot of trouble. And even worse, this is not just the age of Cambridge Analytica and micro-targeting and deep fake technology. It's also the age of the vast tech corporations, the Facebooks, the Amazons, which are not exclusively, but primarily in the advertising business, in the psychotechnics business. Capitalism itself is now being driven by these techniques, which on Schumpeter's account form the essence of democratic politics. There are a whole range of nightmare scenarios here, potentially the merging of capitalist psychotechnics with democratic psychotechnics in order to produce forms of manipulation that are so sophisticated, that are in their way so subtle, that they are completely unrecognized by the voters who then do what they are asked. That is about as far along the spectrum as you can get, where the answer to the question, what is democracy, keeps you awake at night. And yet, I don't think that Schumpeter's argument is cynical. And I also don't think that that's the only way it goes. There is a lot more to be said about his definition than just democracy is turbocharged advertising. I think there are three ways in which it's possible to say that Schumpeter's definition of democracy provides the substance for some really important distinctions between different kinds of politics and potentially even between good politics and bad politics, or at least the kind of politics we might want and the kind of politics, notwithstanding all our differences of opinion, we might not want. And Schumpeter identifies two of these three himself. The third has been identified by a more recent generation of political thinkers who take their inspiration from Schumpeter. So the first thing that Schumpeter says is that though this sounds like a pretty minimal definition of democracy, it's just competition between political elites to secure by manipulation, if necessary, the consent of the voters to their manufactured versions of what it is the voters might be persuaded that they want, there's still a difference between the competitive version and the non-competitive version. That is, there is still a difference between a political system in which the voters are offered a choice between this group trying to sell you something and that group trying to sell you something, and a political system where you have to accept whatever the group in power is selling. And that second version, Schumpeter says, is not democracy. Democracy 
must involve genuine competition, or to put it in slightly more democratic language, genuine choice. And this argument still resonates today. There is, in political theory, what is sometimes called the minimal definition of democracy. What is the bare minimum we need to call something a democracy? And the argument goes, when, following an election, the incumbents lose power, the other side are allowed to take power. And often it's said, if that happens once, it might just be an accident. But if it happens twice, you have got something which has the makings of a democratic system. And that that is to be distinguished from rival systems, because that is not such an easy threshold to pass. There are many, many instances over the last however many years since Schumpeter wrote of states failing that basic test, of the incumbents not giving up power, of following the competition, the people in power failing to sell their version of the manufactured common good and insisting that they won anyway. And Schumpeter says we can still, on his definition of democracy, say that that will not stand if we are Democrats. It gives us a lever from which to resist. It's not quite as straightforward as that, because there are many types of regime that seem to occupy a middle ground between the minimal definition of democracy and failing even to meet the minimal definition of democracy. The slightly jargony term in political science is competitive authoritarian regimes, where there is a kind of competition, and yet it's not clear that the elections really do offer a genuine choice, either because the elections are rigged in some way, or because the playing field is not level, or because the choice itself doesn't actually allow the voters to distinguish between different options. There are regimes around the world which call themselves democracies that hold elections, where it's hard to imagine the incumbents giving up power. Hungary at the moment is one, Turkey is one, the Philippines is one. People were worried for quite a while that the United States of America was becoming one, that it was on the verge of becoming a kind of Hungarian-style competitive authoritarian regime. That is, the competition is fake because the authoritarianism is real. But it's not. The United States of America turns out to be, in Schumpeterian terms, a democracy, because Donald Trump lost, and though he said he wouldn't give up power, he did. And crucially, he gave up power without a fight. That is part of the test. If it leads to real competition in terms of civil war, then it's not a democracy either. The competition has to be the fake democratic competition that stops short of actual fighting, but sufficiently competitive that the people in power can lose power. The United States of America has just passed that test. I wouldn't say with flying colours, but I would defy anyone to say that America failed that test. And when Joe Biden, in his inaugural address, celebrated his becoming president as a vindication of democracy, this grand term sounding idealised, actually what he was defending, though not explicitly, was the Schumpeterian definition of democracy. It wasn't really when Joe Biden became president that the will of the people was enacted and their common interest had been identified and now the politicians know what to do. The politicians don't know what to do because the people are never capable of telling them. What had survived and what indeed Biden wanted to say had triumphed was the peaceful transfer of power. And that is enough to call a state a democracy. The second thing that Schumpeter says is that it's a real test and also 
it's not easy to pass that test because certain background conditions have to hold. And in Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, Schumpeter spends quite a lot of time saying what also has to be true for even this minimal definition of democracy to be a successful, viable method of doing politics. And he tends to associate it, initially at least, with a kind of capitalist or bourgeois society. So a flourishing capitalist society has a couple of advantages over other kinds of economic order, one of which is most people are too busy doing other things to prioritise politics. And that is a precondition of a successful democracy for Schumpeter. It rests on the assumption that most people aren't capable of making those kinds of decisions because they don't matter enough. If politics really mattered for everyone, then that imbalance between the ignorance of the voters and the knowledge of the politicians would start to break down because everybody would have a reason to care. And when everybody has a reason to care, democracy becomes much, much harder to organise. So you want a society where people have better things to do with their time, and you also need a society where people are willing to lose. That is, not just the politicians, but the voters are willing to accept that if their preferred option, the choice that they were sold and wanted to buy, they put their money in and they said, yes, we'll take that one, not this one. And then they're told, well, you can't have that one because most people have chosen the other one. They accept it. Schumpeter says that that predominantly favours a capitalist model of social organisation, but it is consistent with the transition from capitalism into socialism, not radical communist socialism, not totalizing socialism, but softer social democracy socialism, the state taking more and more charge of the economy, more and more decisions being collectively managed by the administrative structures of the state. That kind of society could still go along with most people having better things to do than worrying about politics. Indeed, it's possible, Schumpeter suggests, that in that kind of society, people won't worry about politics at all. They'll be perfectly comfortable with a tame democratic choice because they genuinely won't think that the choice matters. It still has to be a real choice. It still has to be possible to turf this lot out and replace them with that lot, especially if this lot have become corrupt or entrenched in their power. But under social democracy, Schumpeter thinks, it's perfectly possible to have the democratic method flourishing because people don't mind enough. It's possible, but it's also possible that those conditions will not hold. Really divided societies will be ones in which the stakes are too high and democratic politics might break down. But also hyper-organised societies, societies in which the social control exercised by the government extends into more and more areas of people's lives, might become societies in which people do not have that relaxed attitude to winning and losing, where too much is at stake, or where too much is at stake for the politicians. That's the other risk too. To go back to the first test of a democracy, if there's too much at stake for the people who are running the state to really allow power to change hands, because they are now in control of too much, democracy will fail as well. So there's a path from capitalism to socialism via the democratic method. Schumpeter thinks it is the direction of travel of contemporary capitalist democratic societies as seen from 1942, but it is not inevitable and it is not a broad path. It is quite a narrow one. There is still a big difference between it being the democratic path and falling off it. 
And then finally, the last reason for thinking this is not a purely reductive, minimal, cynical account of democracy is that that test of a democratic system that there is a real choice could be applied outside of politics too, that is outside of conventional state politics. It's possible to argue that the real strength of the Schumpeterian definition comes if you try and apply it to areas where people do not have that kind of choice, that they cannot pick whether this lot or that lot tell them what to do, whether this lot or that lot manufacture their will for them. Where are these areas of life where people don't have that choice? Well, almost everywhere. So within families, it could be argued, there are forms of control, of decision-making, where if you don't like it, you don't really have another option. If you don't like it, there isn't a way out, and there isn't a way to say, I want what the other side are offering. In the workplace, there aren't that many workplaces where if you don't like what your bosses tell you what to do, you pick other bosses. There are versions of democracy, at least in name, shareholder democracy, where the shareholders of a corporation, in theory at least, have the right to vote out the board and replace them with others. But it rarely happens. It seems pretty thin. And it makes clear just how much of a difference it would make if that wasn't a thin option, if it was a real option, if you could vote out your parents and not replace them with other parents, but say you want a different set of people telling you what to do, if you could vote out your bosses and replace them with other bosses. So it's not democracy in the sense that you vote out your bosses and replace them with yourselves. On the Schumpeterian account, the people will never rule, and therefore, by implication, the workers will never rule either. But Schumpeter wants us to recognise that there is still an enormous difference, even under those conditions, between choice and no choice. And real choice under those conditions is the radical option. And there are writers about democracy now who want to encourage us to think about all the different ways in which even minimal elite competition modelled on democracy could transform the way we live. Because it would mean that in all sorts of areas of our lives where power really is entrenched, much more entrenched than it is in politics, particularly economic power, we would have the option to rotate, to get rid of the people that we don't like and not replace them with ourselves, replace them with other elitists, but different ones. And when we think about that, we often notice that it's very rare. It's very rare to be able to do that. It is one of the unique qualities of democracy that that is real. We really can chuck the bastards out. Where else can we do that? What finally then of the message that Schumpeter really wanted to get across in capitalism, socialism and democracy, which is that capitalism works, but capitalism may not survive because the way it works will suck the life out of it. And democracy, the democratic method, might well be the enabler of that transition. So that message does now look very dated. Democracy has not, for the most part, been the enabler of the transition from capitalism to socialism. It did, after the Second World War, look like that was the direction of travel. But since the late 1970s, the direction of travel has predominantly been the other way. Not exclusively, but predominantly. Why? Well, part of the reason why, I think, has something to do with Schumpeter's account, not of democracy, but of capitalism itself. 
not in this book, but in other of his writings, he identifies the role of monopoly in driving capitalist innovation. So there is a rival view of economic life, which says that the great driver of innovation is competition itself, competition between rival firms. But Schumpeter understood that in many capitalist systems, there was a propensity towards the successful firm, particularly following a successful technological innovation, achieving a kind of monopoly. And we're seeing it now following the digital transition to a new kind of technology. Pseudo-monopolistic firms hoovering up money and resources and power because they've basically captured a whole new market. That is part of innovation, and it's part of what drives innovation, both the incentive to be one of those firms or one of those capitalists because the riches are almost unimaginable, but also when one of those firms exists, the incentive of others to try and chip away at that monopoly, the incentive of others to innovate just at the point where that monopolistic firm has become too set in its ways, too complacent, too comfortable. Well, the state is a kind of monopoly too. The democratic state, famously on Weber's definition, states are the monopolizers of coercion. And that monopoly too is consistent probably with more entrepreneurship and more innovation than most people allow, maybe even including Schumpeter, because the turning back of the drift towards what Schumpeter thought of as socialism was partly a function of political entrepreneurship. Politicians came along and they wanted to take the power of the state away from the people who had become too comfortable, too entrenched. Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher and others. They were many things, but they were political entrepreneurs. They found a way of selling back to the people a version of the common good of the general interest, which was not the people's, didn't come from the people, but it somehow struck a chord And they did it because they were incentivized to take hold of this extraordinary monopolistic institution. Monopoly and innovation, Schumpeter thought, went together in capitalist economics. But what he didn't say, but could well have done, is they also seemed to go together in democratic politics. That just in a democratic system, when you think the competition has died, they're all the same, they're set in their ways, just at the point when you become cynical and you think that if elections changed anything, they would make them illegal. Just at that point, something changes. And if that's true, even now, even in 2021, even under Schumpeter's minimal definition, that version of democracy probably still has some life in it yet. There's much more about Schumpeter and the other authors in this series of History of Ideas on the page on our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com or in our show notes. Next week, David discusses Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, one of the most important books of the 20th century. It's about love, sex, marriage, oppression, prejudice, violence, and the possibility of women's liberation. But what does it have to say about politics?